Carol, and welcome to episode 106 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week and next is one of Rock's great producers, Ed Stasium, who has also worked on some landmark soul recordings. I first knew of Stasium through his muscular production of power pop albums by the Smithereens and the Cave Dogs, but by then he'd already cemented his reputation through his work with the Ramones and Talking Heads. Now Stasium is back in the spotlight for his brilliant remix of The Replacements' 1985 album, Tim. That band's major label debut, packed with stellar Paul Westerberg songs, always sounded a bit thin, but not anymore. Rhino Records' new Let It Bleed edition box set of Tim may feature alternate takes and live performances, but its main revelation is how, thanks to Stasium, the original tracks explode from the speakers like never before. He goes deep into all of that next week. This week, well... Here's something you should know about Ed Stasium, and you'll figure it out quickly once you start to listen to him here. He is one of Rock's true raconteurs. He not only knows how to tell a story, but he loves doing so. And when he does, you're transported. So, we travel to his early years in Pennsylvania's coal mining country, his first encounter with a reel-to-reel tape recorder, the acquisition of the expensive Seafoam Green Fender Stratocaster that would be played by him and Johnny Ramone on Ramone's albums, and Stasium's discovery of overdubbing through the wonderful world of Disney. We are Siamese, if you please. We are Siamese, if you don't please. We live his rock star dreams with his band Brandywine. We hear about his early 70s studio work with the funk group Skull Snaps and the amazing drum sound he got on the much-sampled song It's a New Day, and how that project bonded him with Vernon Reed and Living Color more than a decade later. Then there's that time Stasium had to choose between meeting John Lennon and Yoko Ono or getting to the hospital in time for his son's birth. George Harrison and Ringo Starr also make appearances in his stories and on his recordings, as do Mick Jagger and Jeff Beck. Finally, we enjoy the epic tale of how Stasium came to engineer and mix Gladys Knight and the Pips 1973 smash hit, Midnight Train to Georgia. The version released wasn't the first version recorded, he explains. Please enjoy this especially entertaining carol pop conversation with Ed Stasium. first time I became aware of you, even though I realized I've been listening to stuff you'd worked on before then, was Smithereens 11, which was their third album. Because yeah. I'd, I'd gotten the first two, and then they kind of stepped up in this kind of crunchy you know, quality that I liked already. So that was when I was like, who produced this? Oh, um, and that was there. And then also the cave dogs, joy rides for shut-ins. I was a big yeah. fan. I lived in Boston and I was a big fan oh. of them. And then they did their debut album. And I'm like, Oh, Ed Stasium, that guy who just did the smithereens album. This sounds great. Yeah, actually, um, there was some stuff that I worked on that was already recorded like tater country. Yeah. I forget which other songs, but you know, I might have done some extra recording on that. I don't know if the original producer even got credit. He should have probably did, but I don't remember his name. I think they did that at um, Fort Apache. They did some recording at a studio called Fort Apache, I believe. 
well it's funny i'm in this vinyl me please record club and they do this throwback thursday thing where they take albums that they'd released previously and i guess they have some of their last copies they sort of put on sale and everyone goes in this frenzy to try to grab them and one of them was the colored vinyl edition of skull snaps a color that's that's a new release yeah yeah so it was like mr bongo put it out a few years ago and this was just like the limited you know colored vinyl which is you know where people go so i'm like oh skull snaps i don't know this record and i looked it up and that was you too. And that was what, like 1973 or something like that? Or? And that was, that was the first album I ever worked on. And there's, there's a lot to go along with that record. Um, that really clinched my deal with living color because um, it's a long story, but um, basically, you know, that was, I, I, I'd never had the album and I ran into Vernon, you know, um, you know, I met Vernon when I was mixing the Mick Jagger Primitive Cool record. Right. Vernon Reed. And um, he had played on one of the tracks for Mick's record. And then they were hanging out and Mick and Jeff Beck went down to CBGB's and saw the band, then brought them in to do a couple demos with Ron St. Germain engineering and Mick producing. And I, I was going back and forth. We were in Studio A at Right Track in New York City and. Um, Ron and Mick and the band were in Studio B doing the demos. They did Which Way to America and Glamour Boys, I think. Those two that, you know, Mick, well, I got a co-producing credit credit with Mick. That was funny. So I became friendly with the guys and you know, I just love those guys. And the, the records were great. We were chatting and hanging out together. And then several months later, I ran into, you know, Right Track was on 48th Street on Music Row, which used to be Music Row. Now it's uh, high rises. I think I haven't been. I don't, I don't get into the city all that much. And um, you know, Manny's was on the street, and Sam Ash. We buy guitars. It was just a bunch of music stores right there, right, um, right by Right Track. And I walk out of Right Track and run to Vernon, and Vernon's like, "Hey, man, we got a record deal. Epic signed us. We're talking to different producers. They're talking like Tom Warman, um, Phil Ramone, and some other A list cats. You know." I, I definitely was not, I've never really been A-list. I've been, you know, a little rebel. Vernon said, and your name came up. Said, okay, and then we should get together and talk. So that was like on a Tuesday, I remember. And then I said, well, come over on Thursday, come to the apartment. I was living in Manhattan at the time on West 78th Street, right right by the Museum of Natural History. And um, I said, come by on Thursday. We'll chat and we'll, you know, talk about whatever, production records I've done, what have you done, blah, blah, blah. So the day before, I, that's when CDs were just starting to pop and um, the record companies were re-releasing all the stuff, you know, they were right. really shitty. And now they were, I think about it, they, man, they were really shitty remasters, you know? They were just like taking anything and getting them out there to sell. You know, they were taking like third generation safety right. copies, EQ'd copies. The, anyway, treble, the treble way up on all of them. Yeah, yeah, I was like, help me now. And... Um, there was a Tower Records right down the street. I lived on 78th Street between Amsterdam and Columbus. And I used to walk over to Tower because I think it was on like 66th Street or something. Right. And Broadway, somewhere around there. And I went, picked up a few CDs. And on the way back, there was a little park. And on the sidewalk, there was this old black dude selling stuff. And he has, there's a stack of records, pretty big stack of records, probably 50 records. And he just had them there. He's selling them. So I'm going through them and I find the Skull Snaps record. I never had a copy of it. I had a copy of It's a New Day, the single, which has been sampled like over 600 times. That Right. The, the intro beat. Yeah. So Skull Snaps, we should let people know who aren't. Uh, it's a group. It looks like it's sort of like a metal record or something like that from the cover because it's got these skulls on it. And But it's this kind of deep 
soul funk record from 73 and it's been sampled a ton later in hip-hop but the the, the original copies of it it did not sell a lot and no, people did not know about it yeah so i thought I, I never received a copy of that album i had the single it's a new day and I'm going through the records and I'm like, oh my God, Skull Snaps. And it had the hype sticker on it. It's The hype sticker says, including the hit single, I'm Your Pimp. Right. <laughs> and uh, I'm there, oh my God, this is, I, I can't, I'm talking to myself. Of course, the guy's just, you know, hang, he's, he's sitting down on the sidewalk. I, I said, I got to have this. And I said, how much for the records? He said, I'll give me a dollar. And um, I didn't have any change. And um, I had 20 bucks in my pocket. I was just here, just take this. This this has made my my year finding this record. You know, I didn't go into the big explanation about what it was and what I worked on. I just you, you didn't point to your name as the engineer on that. I one. did. I did not. I did not. But he was very happy with 20 bucks. Went home, told my then wife about the story. And and then the next day, Vernon comes over and we start talking about stuff. I remember specifically talking about uh um, he really loved uh, Julian Cope's World Shut Your Mouth, that record, mm-hmm. the right. single. And we started talking about stuff. And I said, oh, by the way, and I told him the story about, you know, finding the Skull Snaps record on the street, um, you know, years after it was recorded. And he said, the Skull Snaps, I learned how to play guitar listening to that record. And just like grabbed me and hugged me. Oh, it wow. Was, it was insane. It was like vibe. It was big vibe time. So. So you got the job, in other words. I think I got it because of that. I mean, we got along and I got along with the rest. I had a meeting with the rest of the guys as well. And, you know, it was just the time is right and the vibes are right. And my philosophy of recording was right. And the band was definitely right. They're a great fucking band. Um, Talented, um, personality-wise, they're fantastic. Um, love love those guys. Well, your twenty dollars for the one dollar record was a was a good investment because you got this great gig on a classic album, and, and also friends for, and friends also, for a lifetime. Yeah, and if you, and honestly, if you wanted to flip it now, if you go on Discogs, that thing sells for like a couple hundred dollars or something. I saw a mint copy for like seven hundred bucks. Yeah, so well played overall. Yeah, it was, and that was a cool record. It was a cool record to work on. They were great guys, and they're really funky. And I didn't know what I was doing, you know. So, so you know, I mean, the drum sound is like, what the fuck is that? And I've been getting phone calls. I mean, I was getting phone calls in the '90s from people that tracked me down and said, "How did you get that drum sound on It's a New Day?" I'm, I have no it idea. Sounds very modern. It sounds. There's a reason it's been sampled six hundred times. I guess so. Well, it sounds funky. Yeah, you got funky drummer in that. So yeah, funky drummy, and you know, probably a lot of compression on an LA two way because it's the only compressor we had in the studio. And uh, yeah, man, it went it's still going. So Living you color is still going. Yeah. So you grew up in New Jersey. It sounds like there was sort of a combination of you. You were a musician, and you played guitar and sang, wrote, and then you also learned for about tapes tape machines at an early age like what was your your evolution of either wanting to perform or wanting to be in the control room well i was at first i started on piano there was a piano um my family's from pennsylvania of coal mining heritage or scranton wilkesbury area and they had a lot of friends there and relatives who used to go there and visit and then one of the um friends had a um, a man cave really in the 1950s right and it was a man cave. There was no, it was, there was a coal burning pot belly stove and a bar and a pool table in the man cave. My dad used to take me there. And um, there was the regular house and the man cave part of the house. And there was no, you could see the outside through the 
the wood, the guy built it himself. So you can, it was winter. You can see the outside, you can see snow on the ground between the cracks. I remember that. And there was a little hallway in between the man cave and the regular, the house, the Carpinettis were the name. And there was a piano in there, uh, an old piano, an old upright piano. And I started messing around with it. And Alan Carpinetti, the, the, uh, purveyor, the gentleman of the house, saw me playing. He said, interesting. He showed me how to play chopsticks. Everybody's first song on the piano besides heart. I loved it. You know, I just loved playing the piano. It was was, was totally cool. And um, then another series of untimely events happened. And my aunt Nadine, uh, her church was getting rid of an old piano uh, and back in Jersey, of course, back in Jersey, I just started going on about oh piano, and my parents were like, "Well, well you want to take lessons?" And we got uh, she, we got a donated piano, put it in our little den in Greenbrook, New Jersey, and started taking lessons. Took lessons for about three years, then got more interested in rock and roll. When I got a transistor radio from my aunt Nadine, the same person I got the we got the piano from, and uh, it evolved from there. But it was um, piano. Then fascination with tape recorders at age 10. I had never seen a tape recorder. We just had an old Webcore record player in the house. Right. One speaker, you know, one knob for volume, another knob for a tone, and that had a tone knob on it. You know, played 16, 33, 45, and 78. We had records. I had records. That's all I knew about, you know, and the radio. My right. mom would listen to WOR, Martin Block's make-believe ballroom on uh, WOR in New York. Right, so and the would, tape player, tape recorder would have been real to real. You wouldn't have been a cassette at that point, right? No, no. There was, the cassette wasn't, it was probably like mid-60s, it was mm. uh, invented by Phillips. So the first tape recorder I saw was at a New Year's Eve party. My dad was in a carpool, and... Um, we attended. I attended a New Year's Eve party with them from the people from the carpool, and the music was being supplied by this device that had two reels rolling on it, and there was music coming out of it. I'm like, "What the fuck is that?" Well, I didn't say <laughs> that. I was ten years old. Um, it was probably like fifty nine going into sixty somewhere around there, and um, I was just watching it and, and listening, and it sounded great. It sounded there were no pops and scratches. You know, it was just like clear music, and the I don't even know who the fellow was that. I didn't know the guy. I knew the guys from the carpool, but this was some other fellow that was there and he supplied the music. He was like the DJ. And he saw me watching it and he says, hey, watch this. And he took that reel off, put it on another reel and he recorded my voice and played it back for me. And I'm like, whoa, it was a revelation. I, I had no idea that stuff like that even existed being, you know, the middle class kid in middle in middle class New Jersey in the middle of the state. And I was kind of obsessed with that. And fortunately, my parents were very supportive. They were working class. My dad worked for Bell Telephone for Western Electric. And my mom worked for Johnson & Johnson and Ethicon on assembly line. But they were very supportive. And every birthday and every Christmas, they would, they would save their dough. So I was obsessed with a tape recorder. And for Christmas the next year, they found a little tiny, you know, one of those Japanese battery powered three inch reel tape recorder with a microphone and, you know, playback. And it had it had to to erase the tape to record over a tape. It had like a magnet that had a little just a manual little switch thing that you would put to erase what was on it previously. A magnet, a little wow. tiny magnet um, that was the erase head. <laughs> Yeah, and um, and then from there, um, the next year, I got an electric um, mono, 
Japanese tape recorder. And I started figuring out that I, and I had that little transistor radio that my aunt Nadine gave me. And I took off the back and there were these plugs that came with it. It was like a, it had a quarter inch inputs that was for the microphone. And also a, like you could, they had uh, a quarter inch wire with two alligator clips on it. I'm like, what's that? And then I looked in the directions to show that you can hook it up to speakers. So I figured out how to, I took the back off my little transistor radio and uh, put the clips on the speaker wires and the fidelity had improved like a gazillion percent, a thousand percent. Mm, nice. It's, uh, you know, it sounded really good, especially coming through that speaker. Uh, on the on the tape recorder so i just would record off the radio and then i would secretly record you know my parents having conversations and (laughs) stuff like that and then then one day uh my friend huey murray brought a fellow by um that played guitar he wanted to record his guitar his fellow the guy's name is um derose wayne derose and he had a gretch country gentleman and this is like 1961 Somewhere around there, um, you know, and that's what, you know, George Harrison had a country gentleman. That's right. What he, um, well, one of his guitarists, or an early guitar of his. Yeah, he, he started off with the Gretches, though. Yeah, yeah. And um, he came over and that was the first time, like, I recorded somebody and he was playing. He brought a little amp with him. I don't know what kind of amp it was. And I recorded. He brought a reel of tape and I recorded him playing. And um, then I just started. That was my start. And then it just continued over the years. Then I saved up some money, got a stereo tape recorder, was in the kid in high school. I saved up money again and worked in the grocery store. And um, I guess it was 1965, the summer of 65, I worked in a grocery store. And then I got, after I saw him, Wayne, play guitar, I want to play guitar. So the next year I got an acoustic guitar. Then the following year I got a K electric and then I had the guitar and the you know and the tape recorder, so I would record myself. Then I got a stair. Well, then then I got a Strat, and I worked uh, in a grocery store the summer of '65, Shoprite in Danella, New Jersey. Mm. And um, my parents matched the money. Uh, it was 239 bucks for a Fender Stratocaster, a Seafoam Green. That's a lot back then. It was. You still have it. That guitar has been through hell. That's another, that's a whole other hour story, but it went through hell. I, when I saw Magical Mystery Tour, I painted it in Dayglow paints and wrecked <laughs> the pickups. And then my dad brought it down to natural wood and then I had to repaint it. And it's actually in the Musical Instrument Museum in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, it has uh, my prominence and also has Johnny Ramone prominence. Johnny played that guitar and I played that guitar on all the Ramones records that I did. Oh, oh wow. I mean, the solo on Sedated and the Chunk, 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 you know, Beach Boys type of Chunk, Chunk, Chunk on Sedated. And then on Sheena, that's my that's my Stratocaster playing those. Um, so but, another good know, investment that turned out to be. Yeah, it was. It was. And there's a more, more big story with that. But that, you know, we'll save that for the book. What book? <laughs> um, and so then I saved up enough dough to get a stereo tape recorder. And I started recording my bands in high school. And I was the guy who would get a record, figure out the chords. I had a good ear for that. You know, I mean, I stopped playing piano. I mean, I can still bang a piano, you know. I can play rudimentary piano. I can play rock and roll piano. I would be the guy that would uh, buy a record, put it on my tape recorder and listen to the first, you know, figure out the chords, write down the lyrics and then bring it to the band and tell them, oh, this is how it goes. So that was my beginning of production, I think. 
you know, that was my deep rooted production was in being the guitar player and backing vocalists in um, the bands I was in. And at what um, point did you discover overdubbing? When I was a kid, uh, that, 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 um, would you like use the two tape recorders together to sort of put? Layers eventually, I eventually I did that. But that one, the first stereo, uh, there was a company called Lafayette, and in, in the tri-state area, Connecticut, New York, they had a slew of stores, electronic equipment, and I bought mine there. And you could record one channel at a time and then listen back. So very early on, I I have myself playing like venture songs. Um, I'm like walk don't run and. Ding, 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 penetration. Um, a couple other songs. And I still have those tapes. They're on three and they're, they're on five inch reels. Uh, it did put them on, they're transferred to DAT. They're somewhere in a, in a file somewhere. And I would um, record the rhythm on one, one side, the left side, and then record the lead on the other side. So I was overdubbing in high school that way. And I figured it out myself. Actually, I didn't figure it out myself. I figured it out. I've discovered overdubbing by watching the one. It was like the wonderful world of Disney. It was on Sunday nights. Of course. That's where most audio engineers got their start. <laughs> watching, ba watching Bambi on Sunday nights or whatever. Watching Bambi. Yeah. And there was a segment with, um, I think it was Doris Day. It might not be Doris Day. I might be wrong. But whoever it was for, uh, they showed her singing um, We Are Siamese from The Lady and the Tramp. And they had a tape recorder and a piano player. And they had a tape. They just had it tape recorder on top of the piano. And she was singing along. And then she listened back. And then on another tape recorder, she sang the harmony part. And that was like, oh, so that's kind of how I learned to layer to overdub by watching it. Patty Page. I think it was Patty Page. Yeah. It was Patty Page that sang, We are Siamese, if you please. And then she did the upper harmony. And she harmonized with herself. She harmonized with herself. And that's cool. And I don't remember quite when that was, but it was somewhere, you know, I just happened to pop that on probably, you know, when I was a freshman in high school. You know, freshman, sophomore in high school around the Stratocaster stereo tape recorder time. So I said, I'm going to try that someday. And lo and behold, I sure did. And uh, yeah, boom. So that was my uh, that was my start. That was my high school. And, you know, then as soon as I started playing guitar and, you know, being in rock bands and, you know, playing, getting into rock and roll, you know, I totally my grades totally I never looked at a book. I just would go home and play guitar. And now, did just, you have dreams of being on stage, being a rock star at that point, yeah, as opposed wanted, to being, wanted, you know, the producer? To, yeah, especially after the Beatles hit. You know, everybody wanted to be, you know, the Beatle. And then, you know, you're, you're young, you're 15 years old, you have a guitar, you're playing in front of girls, the girls are going, ooh, you know, so you get interested in the girls and get interested in rock and roll and the whole British invasion thing. You know, it's a great time to be alive. And, you know, what a great time to be a teenager. You know, I, I witnessed the whole British invasion. You know, I was a freshman in high school. You know, I started high school in uh, 63. So... In, you know, February of 64, that's when, you know, the Ed Sullivan show and all that. And, you know, a gazillion people watched it. And so did I. And like jaw dropping stuff. And I remember the first time I heard I want to hold your hand on the radio. Distinctly hear that. And like before Ed Sullivan, it was um, a station WLS in Chicago, I think, because that little transition. 
that little transistor radio at night used to pick up like Buffalo, New York stations, Chicago stations. Yeah, because you're in New Jersey at the time. Yeah. And I think it was a WLS. If this rings a bell. Yeah, 89 WLS. Right. I grew up listening to that a little later, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. With the covers, like Joey says in uh, rock and roll radio, uh, the covers over my head, listening to the transistor radio, just, just listening through. I pull out WLS and here's the DJ going, here's a new sound from England. And I remember those first chords, man. It was like, da, da, da. There. Oh my God. What is that? It was just startling the way it sounded coming out of that shitty little transistor radio. It just popped. It was amazing. And I always, always will remember that. It was before the Ed Sullivan show. They were, they got an advanced copy somehow. It was probably between Christmas and New Year's. Right. So, it's it's it around was, when that single came out. I mean, that was the, yeah. they had other stuff in England, but really in the US, right. that was the song that. Yeah. Broke. That was the first time I heard it. And then, then it all went crazy over here. Yeah, but nuts. It's like yeah. when people sort of dog Ringo Starr, which nobody should ever do. I'm no. always just like, listen to, listen to like anything from that that you know, like first album or like I want to hold your hand or I saw her standing there and find me anything else from around that time that jumped out of the speakers like those do. It's like you just don't because what you're talking about is like how. Like, that's why everyone went crazy, because nothing sounded like that. Everything sounded like that within a year, but nothing sounded like that up till that point. No, nothing was rocking like that at all. And, you know, Ringo's drumming, every, everything about it, every bit, the vocals, they were, so, they were, they were impeccable. You know, the first album was recorded live, live in the studio. No, you know, a couple overdubs, you know, some hand claps. Yeah. So, but you were in a band in like late 60s, early 70s, like 1970, you guys put out an album with Brandywine. Yes, and I was. It's kind of listen to some of it. It's it's kind of folky, like kind of folk rocky <laughs> a little bit. And you're like the lead singer guitarist on it. No, no, I I sang one song called Humble oh. John. Oh, I see. I, I just looked at the credits and it said. Yeah, yeah. I did some vocals, did some backing vocals, but the, yeah, I wrote one song on there. All um, right. I'm not. A, I'm not a good writer. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of us were good writers in in the band. Actually, I played bass on that record because the bass player had a job and kids and he couldn't go and we recorded that in chicago did doing that brandy vine record did that make you want to be a recording artist more or were you like ah, i'm going to do more of the production stuff i started getting into the production thing you know i, I you know in B, after high school you know i was in different bands um different variations of that band Brandywine. uh chip the drummer being a stable part of my relationship with bands. He was always a drummer in my band. I was always interested in recording. I built a makeshift studio in our manager's basement um, with two tape recorders. And actually, it was a, my stereo tape recorder, my Lafayette tape recorder, and then with the cassette and going back and forth from a cassette to that tape recorder. And then I made a big perch because we were working. We were a working band, and I also had a day job because I was – I was, I got married. I got a, my girlfriend pregnant. We got married. And um, my son is actually, you know, doing, he's, he's not working right now because he does Pro Tools playback for film and TV and they're all on strike. So he's not right. working, but he does that. And I have two wonderful grandchildren. He has a wonderful wife. And then um, we were working and I purchased a Sony, uh, Sony 630 uh, tape recorder. Um, this is before the like the TX four tracks came out. There was a six thirty that Sony made, which which was a stereo, but you could it had sound on sound capabilities. You could record on one track, and then it had a knob that you could 
balance the previous recording and then overdub onto the next track. It also had echo on it, it had like delay echo. Mm. Of course, all every song had delay echo on it. And then I learned how to flange, you know, do flanging between two tape recorders. I learned, kind of picked that up by mistake, figured that out by myself. I always loved flanging, you know, Ichiku Park and Life in the Fast Lane. Right. Was that, you know, uh, The Big Hurt by uh, Timmy Euro. Is that who? I, I forgot. That was the first record with flanging on it back in the 50s. Open My Eyes, Naz. That has some good Open My Eyes. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love yeah, I always love that swooshy sound to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. Even on Ramon's records, I did manual flanging like that. To listen to Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. Um, Also on Mental, you can hear on the, there's backwards reverb and flanging on that backwards reverb on Mental on Road to Rune. I got that that Sony and did, you know, demos. And then then, uh, our manager got us a a demo deal with Richie Haven's uh, record company called Stormy Forest. We got a deal with Stormy Forest. Through um, I think it was through MGM or Verve Forecast. Uh, Richie Haven's got a record deal, Stormy Forest. And um, we went into Media Sound, where I later did tons of work with the Ramones and, you know, other people, uh, other artists. I, I, that was kind of my home away from home for a while. Um, we went to Media Sound and we got this uh, producer was assigned to us. His name was Ted Barron, but the dude just sat in the con- at the producer's desk and rolled joints and smoked weed the whole time. And Bob Margoloff was the engineer. You know Bob Margoloff. I know the name, but I wouldn't Bob, tell you what he did. Bob Margoloff is a genius engineer producer. He and Malcolm Cecil had this. They start, They had a band called Tonto's Expanding Headband. Moog synthesizer. It was huge. It was the size of a wall here. It was huge. It was that media sound. He kept it there. Um, well, to skip around a little bit, um, this is before Bob Margoloff and Malcolm Cecil got involved with Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder heard the Tonto's expanding headband record and somehow found out where Bob lived in Greenwich Village, knocked on his door at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. He was in a townhouse or something. And here's Stevie Wonder with his um, handler, Bob answers the door, half asleep, and Stevie goes, are you Bob Margoloff? Did you do this record? And he says, I want to work with you. And he ended up doing, starting with Talking Book. Oh, wow. Talking Book, Intervisions. All right. And the next Filling record. his first finale, sounds, Songs in the Key of Life, yeah. the, great, the great streak of Stevie yeah. Wonder albums. Great records. I mean, yeah, yeah. Intervisions is like, but my go-to record. So Bob went on to do that. And, you know, I, and I, there's pictures of me sitting at the media sound desk, the control, you know, the desk, the, the console and pictures of uh, Tonto. There's a picture of Bob somewhere that I can't find with him holding patch cables in his, over his head, like they're Rasta things. Can't find that one. And, um, yeah, so that was that influenced me going into the studios. Really influenced me watching the process. That was twelve track on one inch tape, an unusual short lived format. It was a Scully tape machine, and um, it was great. It sounded really good. Those those demos sound real good. Uh, I still have copies of those. I don't have the multi tracks, but I have copies of. Them. Is, that I the Rich- is that the Richie Haven stuff? The demos, or yeah, the Richie okay. Haven demos. Yeah, they were never released. That was in. November of 70. Then in 71, our manager, he did all these wacky, he was a radio programmer. He was, when WMCA Radio in New York went 
to um, talk radio. They were, they were like WABC's competition. They're one of the first radio stations in New York to go to talk radio. And I don't remember who the um, host was, but Barry was the program director, this manager guy, Barry Landers. Before he got to MCA Radio, he was the public relations guy for the New York Yankees. Okay? And... People had box seats and he'd all, you know, be <laughs> hanging out with the, the big wigs at the, in the Yankee Stadium. And one of these big wigs was a guy named Nat Tarnapol, whose dad founded Brunswick Records. Sound familiar? The Brandywine Record. Okay. So earlier in the year, April of 71, Barry comes home and says, hey, you're going you're gonna to go to Chicago and record a record for Brunswick Records. That's how we got the deal. He never heard us, nothing. He just like... He was the you know public relations guy for the Yankees, and this guy Nat Tarnapol went up to the office and he says, "Oh yeah, I'll sign you." Okay, he didn't hear a song, didn't hear one note. Signed us. We drove out myself, Chip the drummer, and Albert the keyboard player, vocalist, drove out to um, Chicago, stayed in one room at a Holiday Inn, and recorded at the Brunswick Recording Studio with no other than the incredible Bruce Swedeen as the engineer. Bruce Swedeen was the the top guy in Chicago. I mean, he recorded Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie. And then he moved to L.A. to become Quincy Jones's engineer. And he worked on all the Michael Jackson records. You know, he did, you know, he did, you know, Thriller. He did Bad. Uh, what's the one, the first solo record he did? I forgot. Off the, the Wall. Off the Wall. He did all those records. Then he did some Missing Person stuff. Reminded him he's no longer with us, Bruce, but what a, and so I really watching him, it was the summer of 71. Somebody put out a CD of that record. Some, com some company in Europe. I was, no I was notified. I actually got one and they denoised it. It sounds like, you know, it sounds pretty good, but you know, the record isn't actually that great. It's terrible. We did it in three days and I played bass and guitar on the record and did a lot of out of tune singing. And so did the singer. Yeah, was, and then uh, within like a few years, you're working with Holland Dozier Holland and Gladys Knight and the Pips. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, so, how, so how did that happen? So October of '71, Barry Landers again. This will be the last Barry story. He's working at, w, at WMC Radio that I briefly talked about ten minutes ago. Right. And uh, he's he comes home. And he's all excited. What's going on? Hey Barry, what's happening? He says John and Yoko are coming into the studio. Wow. My hero, John Lennon. Right. Love John. And um, October 71, the date set, it was like in the first week of going talk radio. I don't remember who the, the, the host was, um, but John and Yoko were coming in. And, you know, I, I was at, at the time I was working for Ampeg and Alltech. Uh, Ampeg, Alltech in Linden, New Jersey, in the shipping department. Um, I had started in the factory. You know, they make amp amplifiers. They get did. Yeah, I, I have a vintage '60s tube uh, Ampeg jet amplifier. Oh, I have one of those. I do. I have a jet with the vibrato on it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's the only yeah. the only effect on it is vibrato. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have one. I just had it serviced recently. It sounds great. Uh, I have one of those Trem tremolo. Cool? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, it's got yeah. a tremolo knob, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. It's great. I love it. Um. Yeah, so I didn't make that one, but I, I did make a lot of SVTs and V4s and V4Bs. I was on the assembly line for a little while, then I got transferred to shipping. And I, I was there briefly, probably only there eight months. So, you know, October 4th comes up, and I get dressed up. I put on my, you know, my um, 
I have, you know, a nice shirt and my uh, velvet jacket and velvet pants and my my beetle boots. And um, I'm in. I, I told everybody, you know, I'll be leaving at 11 o'clock because I'm going in to meet John Lennon. Damn it. And so <laughs> I get a call from my my first wife, Debbie. Uh, I get a call from her girlfriend, Nancy. And she says, Ed, Debbie's in labor. Huh. Debbie's in labor. I'm there. No, she isn't. Fuck this. No, Debbie, she can't be in labor. Tell her to wait. She had already gone to the hospital, so I didn't go see John Lennon. I uh, went to see my son Jason being born in my velvet pants and my velvet jacket and my nice shirt and my beetle boots. And, I'm sure they appreciated how you got dressed up for the, the birth. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, it's better um, than seeing John and Yoko. Yeah. And um, somehow I, I called into the radio station after Jason was born and they were still at the station. And um, I talked to the guys and told them that, you know, it was a boy because we didn't know at the time we didn't have any of this, uh, you know, didn't do anything like that. Right. There, there was no uh, gender reveal party or, you know, I don't even think they had the uh, whatever you call that, you know, put in your tummy. The and, ultrasound. That's it. Ultrasound. You got it. I can't think. I don't have <laughs> my vocabulary. Isn't that great? Especially in the scientific world. Um no ultrasound. So I said, yeah, it's a boy. We named, we named him Jason and blah, blah, blah. And they told John and John wrote on a piece of, uh, took a piece of the yellow legal pad and wrote happy birthday, Jason, love John and wrote, a, uh, put a little caricature of him and Yoko. And Aww. then Yoko, Yoko scribbled something. And I can't know. Nobody's ever been able to do, to decipher. Um, but you know, my son has that. And there was photos taken that day. In the, in the in the uh, radio station at the radio station, and so I, I had applied. His mom, Debbie, had it in a, a shitty little frame for years. It was cracked. It was fading from the sun. You know, it was. So I had it in the nineties. I had it properly mounted with a photo and presented it to him with a little plaque. You know, presented to Jason Stacey on the day of his birth. Blah 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 blah. So it's pretty cool. So, yeah, the, so it was good timing after all. Yeah. Except for you not getting to meet John, but that's pretty cool. Didn't meet John. No, nope. But I, I do. I do have connections with all of those Beatle guys. Um, that was my connection with John. Uh, George Harrison played uh, on we when I did the Jeff Healy record, Hell to Pay. We call it to pay because of the drummer wore to pay all the time. Hell, to, it was called <laughs> Hell to Pay. Hell to Pay. Hell to Pay. Um, we did a cover of uh, Hell to Pay would be a good album title, actually. Yeah, it would be. I, that, I always call it that record that or way. Or band anyway. name. Yeah. 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 Um, so George so is on that record? We got Michael Kamen was buddies with Jeff and buddies with George, the late Michael Kamen. He was in the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble, right. who I saw open up for Jimi Hendrix at uh, Lincoln Center once back in like 69, 60s. No, it was the experience. It was like 68, I think. Anyway. Um, so they got in touch with each other and George Harrison called the studio and he, I talked to George, he talked to Jeff and then I talked to George on the phone and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm talking to George Harrison. It was great. And he asked, well, Ed, what would you like me to do? What would you like me to play or do? What would you like me to sing? Would you want to blah, blah, blah. I'm working with Jeff Lynn, you know, he can help too. And, um, so I was talk, talked to him on the phone and I wrote him a letter and, uh, you know, he used to say, you know, play, play some slide guitar in this section, play acoustic guitars and do some backing vocals. And they did backing vocals. They did it at Rumbo, which where I later worked with the Smithereens and uh, something happens. And 
bunch of bunch of other projects. I did overdubs there uh, at Rumbo. They did it, and you know, actually, I had more, been working there. I did the Smithereens record before the Jeff Healy record, so I knew the uh, the the staff. So, you know, it was easy for me to call the staff and say, hey, we're going to send you a, a safety copy of this for George to work on, which is really cool. So that's my connection with George. Ringo uh, played on the last Empty Hearts record that I did. Mm. Clem gave up his seat. You know, you know Empty Hearts. And- yeah, yeah, it's like Clem and Elliot Easton. And it's it's one of those kind of combo bands. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys. So Ringo played on one song on the last record because Wally knew him from doing the uh, star, the all star band thing. Wally, Wally Palmer from the Romantics was a singer in Empty Hearts. So that's my Ringo connection. And then what's my Paul connection? Oh, um, I did a remix with Arthur Baker, the disco king, right. of, a, of a song called No More Lonely Nights. It was from that Broadway, uh, that play. Give my give my regards to Broad Street. His movie. My, that, that, you are correct, sir. That is yeah, correct. Yeah, that was. I think that might have been his last number one single. Oh, really? It's a big one. Oh, like 80, 84, The big somewhere, the big, somewhere around there. The big yeah. Paul ballad. Yeah. No yeah. more lonely nights. So there was like yeah. a disco remix of that one. Yeah, we did a disco remix, but one of the tracks I w- had Paul like scatting and stuff, just going boop 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 and doing only silly shit. And I have a cassette of it somewhere. I don't know where it is. I got to find that sucker. And so I just put it on cassette. I have a cassette of that one track. We didn't use it at all. And he didn't use it, but I have a cassette of it somewhere. I'd love to get right. that. Yes. Where was I? I think, Midnight oh, Train to Georgia. Oh, geez. <laughs> okay. So I'm in a band. In those bands, that record comes out. Debbie gives birth to Jason. I um, I get fired from my job at Ampeg because I'm playing in a band and I get in at four in the morning and have to be at work at seven and I don't get there till 10. I get fired, get a notice. I'm collecting, I managed to collect unemployment. I'm living in my parents' basement, okay? With your baby and wife? With my baby and wife, yes. Well, that was our living room. We had a, we actually had a bedroom uh, upstairs, which used to be a den, which we converted to a bedroom. And, Is this the uh, house you grew up in? Yes, house I grew up in. Okay, and we had we had got after we got married, uh, and Jason was born. We had an apartment, but then I could no longer. It was like you know probably one hundred and ten bucks a month or something. But I I got fired. I wasn't making any money in the band. I had to had to leave the apartment, and move in with my parents, some and collecting unemployment. And um, for some stupid, ridiculous reason, I had a you know the store Bamburgers. It's a subsidiary of. It's a, like a subsidiary of Macy's. Okay. Like a, it's like in Jersey, in Connecticut, upstate New York. I went and bought two bicycles, 120 bucks. I had no money. I went and bought two two bicycles. And so we were riding around the neighborhood, and I bumped into this guy, Michael Bonagura, who I knew from my garage band days, and I taught him how to play guitar when he was a kid. He's like five years younger than me, so I was, he was probably 11. I was probably 16 when we met, and I hadn't seen him in years. I ran into him, and he's like, hey, Eddie, how you doing? My dad knows this guy, Tony Camello, who he teaches at there's a university called uh, Alma White College in Zarapath, New Jersey. And Michael's father, Big Mike, was the English professor. And Tony Camello was the music professor at teaching. But Tony's side gig was, you know, having a little studio with Tony and as Tony Bon Jovi as a partner. 
And so I bump into Michael and says, hey, this buddy of mine, uh, my dad's is building a recording studio in his house in Belmede, New Jersey, by Somerville, New Jersey, central New Jersey. I'm there, what? Really? Yeah, he said, we can go down there anytime and record. And he has an engineer named Tony Bon Jovi that will be, you know, engineer all our stuff. And I'm there, okay. And so then Michael and I started up in a band again, okay? We started playing like swim clubs and stuff. This is the summer of 70, 73, early 73, doing a couple club gigs. And this guy, Jamie Flynn, was playing drums. This guy, Alan LaBeouf, was playing bass. Michael's playing guitar. I was playing guitar. Just doing, you know, British invasion stuff, having fun, making a little bit of money to augment my unemployment <laughs> income. Um, and Michael kept calling Tony. He never called back. We just finally got down there and we walk. I'm, I'm expecting a studio. Um, so we walk into the, the he made an addition to his house. We walk in and it, it's it's in a construction phase. It's being built. There's a console on the floor. There's a, a Ampex MM1000 um, two-inch 16-track, the same machine that they had in Chicago, and a patch bay and microphones, boxes of microphones. Apparently, there was a um, a fire sale somewhere, if you know what I mean. And they Tony Camillo got all this equipment for like ten grand, like all these like you know ten U eighty sevens Neumanns and a console and tons of stuff. And you know Tony Bon Jovi was you know the engineer, and they're trying to. So I just started hanging out there. I was unemployed. I started going there every day. I started doing things like wiring the patch bay, wiring a meter bridge, because I knew a little bit about soldering, building a drum booth, putting the floor down, building gobos, wiring the headphone system, helping put the glass in. There was no glass, you know, uh, staining the floors, hanging speakers, just hanging out for months. Tony Bon Jovi had designed an e a, a echo room, a echo chamber. There was no effects in those days. There, was, there were just these big EMT plates, which he hadn't, we did eventually get one there, Tony, so we didn't have one at the time. So Tony Bon Jovi uh, designed this really cool um, room, like a closet, the size of a long closet, like a walk-in. And um, it was going to be used for for uh, echo chamber, like the Capitol Chambers under the Capitol building, and, or the Gold Star Chambers, uh, famous Gold Star Studios that were recorded end of the century in. Right. And um, Michael and I, epoxied this thing it was like summer there was no air conditioning it was like 110 degrees we have this like fiberglass epoxy we're like rolling onto the walls and sniffing this stuff and getting totally dizzy getting like you just want to throw up but it was like i was determined to finish it and um we ended up you know doing that one hot july hot june whenever it was july day 70 73 this was it was probably i think it was august um, you know, it was, you know, 51 years ago and um, finished that and just started bringing my friends in to record them. And, you know, um, I would actually record myself. I would set up the tape machine and put it in record and run out into the room and play guitar or whatever, play drums. You know, I do it, do it all myself. I love Paul McCartney's first record. Right. Except my stuff sucked. <laughs> actually, this is, there's one song that's pretty good um, that I have somewhere. Um, very early stuff, you know, didn't know what, and again, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had no idea. Microphone choice. I didn't know anything. I had no technical knowledge of anything whatsoever. 
Um, just, just having a blast learning how to record with my friends. That's a good name for a book. Learning how to record with my friends. There you go. You too can do this. And be that uh, memoir you're going to write. Yeah. So we started, you know, I did that skull snap. Then the studio was finished, brought in some stuff. Um, so skull snaps was recorded in that studio, like early yes. on. Yes. One of the, if, if one of the earliest, if not the first thing that I did, there's another uh, artist called Harold Vick. That was a jazz thing that I did as well. Those are the two earliest projects that I know of. They're both on my Spotify playlist. Have you, you know about my Spotify? I have a Spotify playlist. I should. Uh, All right. I'll I, go check it out. I should. I don't know. I don't know how to find. I can. I can send you a link to it. Okay, great. I don't know how yeah, you. I'll. I'll alert people to it when I do the. You know, post this thing. Okay. Yeah. Um. And then uh, we started bringing some stuff in. Uh, you know. And then you know, Tony was tight with the Holland Dozier Holland people. Tony. There's another long story about Tony Bon Jovi calling Motown and figuring out their echo and reverb and how they did made their records. And they flew the engineer there and Barry Gordy flew him out to Detroit and offered him a gig. And he said, well, if I only if I can bring Tony Camello as an arranger, I'll come and work because he was like 18, 19 at the time or something. This was way before me. And so Tony did some arrangement with Frida Payne, but he became tight with Holland Dozier Holland somehow. So. They wanted to do some background vocals. I think it was on a Dion Warwick record they were doing. Although we did later on, Tony produced three tracks for Dion Warwick, which would never have never been released. Maybe there's four tracks. I actually have a quarter inch tape of those mixes that I did, but I don't believe they're ever released. Um, so I'll anyway, I don't know. I don't know these. I don't know these business things. Right. I only know. I only know how to turn knobs and listen. That's all I know how to do. I don't know. I know nothing of the record business. Nada. Don't even ask. I have no idea. Publishing, forget about it. Um, ignorant of that stuff. I'm still just have a kid having fun with, you know, instead of a spinning reels, I have a spinning hard drive. It's all good. So one day, Tony's all excited. Holland, Dozier, Holland are coming here. They we're gonna, they're going to do some backing vocals for a Dion Warwick session. Okay, great. Eddie, can you go pick them up? Anyway, they were staying at a fancy hotel in Central Park South. And Tony had probably told him, yeah, I'll send a car for you, okay? At the time, I was driving. <laughs> I was driving. No, I was driving my dad's car. So it must have been around, I'm trying to think. But we did Midnight Train in, 70, in 73. So I started Camillo's in 72. I was driving my dad's car. I borrowed my dad's car. I don't remember. Yeah, I was probably living at my parents' house. Okay, so he sends me in a 1967 Ford Galaxy without air conditioning in the summer. Again, like seven, it was probably 73. Okay, to go pick these guys up. And I'm a hippie. You know, I'm totally long hair. I'm, you know, fry boots on and jeans and, you know. And you're getting Holland Dozier Holland, the greatest, you know, songwriting the greatest team of songwriters in the world. And yeah. Tony is... Like, you know, okay, I'll have I'll have a car picked you up. And of course you're thinking, oh, you'll have, have a limo pick us up, you know, of course. And so I go in and I I call their room and they come down. Or they they may may have been waiting in the uh, lobby. I don't remember. And they walk in and they see this hippie, they look at me and they say, Yeah, I'm here to take it to Tony Camillo's. And I go, okay. And they come out and they look at the car and they're like, they just <laughs> stood there. And there was three of them and some of like a bodyguard. And these are big, they're big guys. You know, so there's like three in the back seat, no air conditioning. It's like 90 degrees with 100% humidity. And I have to drive them the, you know, 45 minute hour to Tony Camello's. I don't think they said a word the entire time. <laughs> Thank you.
Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery, has moved beyond beer with its new sparkling hop water, Super Zero. Launched in time for anyone observing Sober October, Super Zero delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling Antihero IPA. But it contains no alcohol, calories, carbohydrates, or sugars. If you're taking a break from beer, Super Zero is the super alternative. It's available in six packs at stores and on revbrew.com, even if you live outside Revolution's distribution footprint. Things, things are going on, going on. So it becomes, it's 1973. I've done the Skull Snaps. I've done, you know, Holland Dozier Holland backing vocals. I've done Harold Vick and my friends. And Tony gets, and we start doing uh, all these records for Buddha. Uh, he was buddies with Neil Neil Bogart, right. who was uh, the president, you know, he was the guy at uh, at Buddha Records. And um, Cecil Holmes was like the A&R guy. And Cecil Holmes started Casablanca. And he actually signed Kiss, I think. Cecil Holmes, this black dude. And Neil Bogart. So Neil loved Tony. I don't know what the goings on were. I was not pro- privy to that. But, you know, Tony's all of a sudden, he's going to be, we're going to be recording some tracks for Glass Sign the Pips. And they're, oh, I love Glass Sign the Pips. You know, heard through the grapevine, neither one of us. Great songs, great radio hits. Um, we get the, the music for Midnight Plane to Houston, um, you know, but already um, Sissy Houston already cut, already changed the, the title to Midnight Train to Georgia um, with Jim Weatherly's permission. We cut the backing track for that three times. Um, those Cecil, we did a Cecil Holmes record, the A&R guy who did a, an album of, um, it was called the Black Motion Picture Experience with all the studio musicians. And these are like great studio musicians, you know, like Steve Gadd, Will Lee, uh, Alan Rubin, uh, all these cats, you know, the New York cats. They would come to New Jersey and Tony would make them Italian dinners and we'd cut, a, cut the backing tracks for an album in one day. That's how it went. You know, bam, knock it out. Nice. And uh, so it was a big session. The first two sessions we did with the Midnight Train backing track were the big band, you know, drums, bass, Bob Babbitt on bass for all these sessions. Um, Andrew Smith. I, actually, I think it was Alan Schwartzberg that played. Uh, it might have been Steve Gadd that played on the original two tracks. Uh, and then on guitar, we had Bob Mann, Jerry Friedman, and Jeff Mirnoff, Pat Rebelo on piano, um, Barry Miles, R. Tony on the electric piano. And then the horn section were, you know, they're, they're like the, you know, Alan Rubin, who was the trumpet player in the Blues Brothers. And um, we have uh, the saxophone player, um, Lou Delgado, who was the musical director for Saturday Night Live from the very beginning to, for many, many years. Um, the Brecker Brothers, Mike and Randy on horns as well on these sessions. They did play on the, the final version as well. And then people from the Philharmonic playing strings. New York Philharmonic that Tony knew from, you know, because Tony was a, a doctor of music from um, Juilliard. So we cut it twice with a big band. Gladys hated. Well, I don't know if she hated it, but she did not. She disliked. She did not like the first two backing tracks that we did. 
So she had a conversation with Tony and there was talk about wanting it to sound more like Al Green, more of an Al Green vibe. So I remember listening to some Al Green records. It was a Sunday. It was He's kind of at the height of Al Green at that point in 73. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's August. No, it was July because the record came out 50 years ago, like today. Um, it was July, June or July of 73 and it was Sunday. Tony was panicking. He was kind of panicking because he's there. We got to do this Gladys record. You know, we have all these other, you had some other tracks cut that she liked. Okay. But she didn't like midnight train in Georgia. So he called in Bob Babbitt, Andrew Smith and Jeff Mirnoff. And on a Sunday and Jeff had been down the Jersey shore. He's all sunburned. I remember that. And we cut a track to make it sound kind of Al Greenish. And sent it to Gladys, and she loved it. You know, did a, did a rough mix. We went to, did the horns. We did a rough mix. Actually, we didn't do it that day. The next day, we did horns and strings. And Tony played some percussion. Um, Barry Miles. Tony played uh, the Ulster electric piano on the backing track. Then Barry Miles came in and played the acoustic piano. Uh, Tony did some Hammond organ and did some percussion. We did the strings and horns the next day or two days later and sent it to Gladys and she loved it. And uh, we immediately, he, he went to Detroit to do the vocals. He calls, calls me up and go, Eddie, fly to Detroit. We're going to do vocals with Gladys. Okay. So it was my first plane ride. I wow. had never been on a plane before. Well, I've been on a plane with Tony Bon Jovi. It scared the shit out of me. A single engine. That's another story. Um, <laughs> but I went to Newark airport and then took a flight to uh, Detroit. And um, there we went. And did the vocals. So she, that's a that's she did a reference vocals. So the Pips can do backing vocals. The Pips did backing vocals, pretty much a line at a time. And then uh, Gladys went out and says, "Okay, I'm going to do the vocal now." And this, this was the console I was not used to, so I just guessed at what was happening with the recording levels. And she says, "I'm going to do a vocal now." Boom! Went out there and did a vocal. One take. It's a one take vocal on Midnight Train to Georgia. Wow. Yeah, and uh, brought it home with the multi track under my arm. Mixed it and went to wax, you know, mastered it, a bell sound. And then it went out and was a, was a hit. Now, when she was singing it, did you think, wow, she's like nailing the song? She just, it was just mesmerizing. You know, I, I was actually really nervous. So I was just hoping that, you know, nothing would go wrong on my end. Cause you know, but it was, uh, you know, I put up, I used a compressor. I used the LA-2A, my handy, not mine personally, but, you know, the only compressor that I knew how to use. And um, everything was, I guess, at the level and everything went well. And the rest is history, so to speak. Yeah, because of the people you'd recorded, I mean, as a vocalist, she's kind of above everyone else at that point, right? Jagger's a great vocalist. No, but you hadn't recorded him at that point. I'm no, saying no, by I then I hadn't by then. No, I hadn't recorded anybody really. No, just the skull snaps and a couple, you know, backing vocals. But it's like your it's like your first time on a plane, and then you're in a recording studio with the Gladys Knight, who's had a bunch of hits at that point. Yeah, and and she's nailing the song on one take. It must have been like like oh, I've entered this other league at this point. Yeah, yeah, I guess I didn't think that, but I was just thrilled. Did you think oh, this is a hit record? I've never thought that about anything I've worked on. I know what I like, you know, and I like, I, I liked Midnight Train of Georgia. I liked it from the backing track point of view. I liked it from the minute we, you know, started working on it. I liked it, but I don't know. I don't know what a hit record is. What do I know? 
I don't know. Someone who's listened to a lot of music over the years. Yeah, but I just know what I like. And a lot of stuff that I like is are not hit records. Do you remember hearing Midnight Train to Georgia on the radio for the first I time? I do. I do. It was in October. Um, by that time, Tony Camello had put me on a salary. I was no longer un- on unemployment. Um, we had, uh, I had moved to one house and it got flooded in, in a Greenbrook flood. Um, it was a flash flood. And I, I, I was in, actually in Detroit doing vocals with Gladys when it happened. So we moved and it moved to a, another house that was renting. And I was washing dishes and I was listening to good old WABC radio and um, AM. And went on a transistor radio, had it in the windowsill. And there it came on the radio while I was washing dishes. And I was thrilled, thrilled the pants off of me. It was what a fantastic feeling that was. Yeah. October then, of 73. And then you were like, yeah, that's a hit. Yeah, that's a hit. Then it zoomed up to number one. So you, you, did, you didn't work with her again after that, though? They didn't yeah. call you guys we back? Did, or we did, we, no, we did another. Tony did another record with her. We did um, I Feel a Song. It was the name of the title record we worked on with her. And uh, we, I did a Christmas record with her. Um, we, Tony did a Christmas record. So I worked on that and I worked on uh, some tracks on the I Feel a Song record, which was the follow up to uh, follow up to the Imagination album that Tony produced. I think five songs and Richie, Kenny Kerner, and Richie Weiss produced the rest of the record. I think Ralph Moss, the engineer from Electric Lady, uh, produced The Way We Were. It was a live recording right on that record on Imagination. But it was a huge record. That's all for episode 106 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Ed Stasium for sharing so many great stories that he and I had to have a second conversation to cover the rest. So please come back next week for much more about the Ramones, Talking Heads, the Smithereens, and the revelatory replacements Let It Bleed edition of Tim, now available on Rhino Records. You can learn more and read previous Carol Pop guest Dennis Dykin's biographical essay about him at edstasium.com. Stasium is still keeping busy and taking on new projects. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who recently experienced the birth of his son without any John and Yoko distractions. Congratulations, Chris. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for part two of Ed Stasium. Thanks.